Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all here. Good morning. I uh, had a lovely time last night at dinner uh, at the Friendsgiving. Um, lots of good food, lots of good company. My kids, they all dropped like rocks last night, which was wonderful for me. Um, so thank you for the hospitality. Uh, we're going over this book of Colossians. And just to give a little bit of background here, um, so far in this letter of the Colossians, Paul addresses false teaching and how there was this newfound syncretistic religion that mixed in with Jewish practices and pagan elements. And it was believed that if you just follow the new way of spirituality, you can have a better life. You can have a better life. Better always sounds good. But the counter-argument that Paul has is really simple. Why settle for better when you can have what's best in Christ? And he's going to pitch it to us. But before we get into it, let me go and pray for us as we ask and seek for God's blessing over his words. Would you join your hearts with mine in a word of prayer? Father God, as we come before you, we just simply ask that your spirit would give us faith mixed in with this imagination to be able to see what it is that you are doing. That as you proclaim in your words to seek the things that are above, give us a grand vision for what heaven truly is. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you have too much to lose, when you got too much to lose, there's nothing to gain. Nothing to gain. When in your life you have too much to lose, you have nothing to gain. Because whatever you gain, it's never enough for you. There's never enough time. There's never enough accomplishments. There's never enough experiences. And when you've got too much to lose, there's nothing to gain from that. That's one way to live. But then there's this other way. When you have nothing to lose, everything is gain. And this mindset is all about becoming heavenly-minded, which is what Paul is seeking after for all of us. See, in this particular passage, the Apostle Paul, he highlights this tension of living in between what we call two ages, that we are either seeking to live in a passing evil age where there is just too much to lose, and you're going to lose everything anyways, or there's an age to come where heaven will finally touch earth. Which will you seek after? Which are you seeking? See, to help process all this, Paul helps break down how to actually engage in the different realms that we're called to belong to. And I believe he, he breaks it down into three parts for us. First, there's the realm that's above. Secondly, there's a realm below. And last of all, there's a realm beyond. Those three things, above, below, beyond. Let's look at the first point here, above. Prior to this, in chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says this. He says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? And then you compare this now with our today's passage in verse 1, where Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. There's a deliberate contrast there. 
And the point is not so much that the world is evil and it's bad, but rather the focus is on the world is incomplete. It's an incomplete world. And if that is the case, then what Paul presents is a question of our ultimate existence. Where is our ultimate existence? Where does it lie? Where does it rest? Where can we be complete? And the answer lies in the resurrection because it it reveals the ultimate realm that we belong to. That according to the Bible, before the world existed, heaven was already established. An invisible realm suitable for the likes of angels and especially for the presence of God. A presence that has a presence that guarantees no wrongs, no suffering, no tears, just absolute heartfelt joy. And in the beginning, as the earth is created, God's intention, his intention was to complete it by bringing heaven down to earth. And the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of God fulfilling his intended purpose, which means our ultimate existence belongs to a heavenly realm. It belongs to a heavenly realm. And that is why Paul says, seek for the things that are above. Yet I find it incredibly difficult to convince anyone of this, that your greatest desire has got to be in heaven because all other desires on this earth will pale in comparison to that because it seems so distant. It seems intangible. It seems unrelatable at times. And we like the idea, but that's all it is at times an idea. And heaven becomes this extra credit bonus, where if if it really happens, then great. But if it doesn't, I'm still going to enjoy my life. They did a study, a scientific study, and it was a controlled experiment where they induced people to lose consciousness. I'm sure they signed waivers and all that. And they recorded some people having these out-of-body experiences, and, and they wanted to see what they experienced in this. Here's what they said. Some of them have feelings of peace and pleasantness. Some said they felt that they entered into another world. Others experienced being their prenatal selves, while others also experienced going through a tunnel. Keep in mind, they lost their consciousness momentarily. In another book called uh, Final Gifts, these two hospice nurses, they share their experience of what people are saying, actually typically say what kind of metaphor they use when they're actively dying. And the one that's typically given is travel. Travel. What I find fascinating about all these different experiences is how they all communicate life beyond the one that we have it now. That's what's fascinating to me. Sure, maybe we can say and argue that this is an imprint of our culture, that this is just what society wants us to believe. Or maybe it's a deep fear that starts kicking in, uh, leave us with happy thoughts in the face of death. Or, deep down, we have an undeniable spiritual longing to go to where we truly belong. Race with Christ. There's this new trolley at this farmer's market that my family likes to go down in San Diego. And it looks like the trolley from Daniel Tiger's neighborhood. For those of you older, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. 
So we thought it would be a great family activity for us. And so we haven't been there in a while, so we're all getting re、uh, ready to go. As soon as we walk out the door, the murmurs begin. I don't want to go. Just leave me home. And like we're convincing our child that、uh, you know it's fun. You always have fun at this place. Let's just go. We're convincing him. We get in the car, and the whole ride in the car, it's just nonstop, so persistent of a protest, so much whining. No one can stay sober. And we finally get there. We give him some food, and we finally get on the trolley. The kids all smiles. We get back in the car. He's happy as a clam, and he simply says, "That was fun. Let's do it again." And as frustrating as that incident is for me to see in my child, I realize it's a great depiction of ourselves, our spiritual selves. That as Jesus presents heaven as our ultimate destination and promises to take us there, oh how we murmur. We get busy with our investments. There's just too many pressing concerns in our lives. That's nice, but I'm good here. Paul says to seek for the things that are above, because above, here's what Paul says: where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is an allusion to、uh, Psalm 110, and the psalm expresses Jesus's dominion over everything in his glorified state. And so this posture of sitting indicates completion. It indicates certainty, a sense of victory, because when a king is in battle, you can't really sit around. You just can't. You're pacing back and forth, wondering if your strategy is working out. There's people to meet, commands to give, all of which require standing on your two feet. But the glorified, resurrected Jesus sits. Knowing that his work is complete, and that he has brought victory, all things are in his control. He is not worried of how everything will turn out. He sits. Yet in this glorified state, Romans eight thirty four says, "Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us." Jesus prays for us. While he sits enthroned in heaven, you would think that he has more important matters than to pray for us in his glorified state, and yet he is praying us into his kingdom. That brothers and sisters, regardless of how weary and discouraged we may be, every day we are one day closer to heaven because Jesus is praying us to belong, seeking for what's above. That's where he calls us to look. That's where our attention is at. But along with seeking the things that are above, it informs how we're supposed to、uh, live below, which brings us to the second point here: below. As Paul commands us to seek the things above, it doesn't make our lives below in the present age irrelevant. Instead, Paul's claims are about defining our relationship to this present age that we exist in. How do we relate to it? As Paul reiterates back in verse two, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. See, this word for setting our minds means giving careful consideration, 
And the, verse impli uh, the verbiage implies that this is supposed to be a continual act that seeking and setting our minds on the things that are above are, are, are means to be constantly seeking God's will for us in our lives. As the Lord's Prayer teaches us, thy will be done on earth as it is in where? Heaven. And this is about placing God's will for us above our own. This doesn't mean that we can't pursue anything in this life. Marriage is good. Friendships are invaluable. A job gives us a sense of purpose and meaning to do something great. The vacations are nice to enjoy. The foods are great to taste. The experiences, they're all good. But they're all temporary. The problem lies when we turn temporary goods into the ultimate ones. Nothing lasts forever. The only constant thing that I can guarantee in our lives is how fickle our hearts can be. That's the one guarantee in our lives, the fickleness of our hearts. Harvard, uh, Harvard psychologist Dan Gilbert, he put it this way, at every stage of our lives, we make decisions that will profoundly influence the lives of the people that we're going to become. And then when we become those people, we're not always thrilled with the decisions that we made. So the young people pay good money to get the tattoos removed that the teenagers paid good money to get. Middle-aged people rush into divorce who young adults rush to marry. Older adults work hard to lose what middle-aged adults worked hard to gain. On and on and on. All of us are walking around with an illusion that history, our personal history, has just come to an end that we have recently become the people that we were always meant to be and will be for the rest of our lives, end quote. I'm not going to lie. I felt really insecure when I read that the first time myself. What does this Harvard guy know? I care nothing if he went to Harvard. He doesn't know me. You don't know me. And I reflected on what he said. And I couldn't help but laugh at myself that maybe he's right. It reminds me of how someone said, someone said that in their 20s, he thought he was going to go out and he's going to go change the world. And then he turned 30 and he says in his 30s, he's just going to work on himself. I'm just wanna, I just want to change myself. And now in his 40s, he says, I'm just hanging on to dear life. I couldn't understand it at the time. But now I get it. Our hearts are so fickle. And yet, thank God that he wills himself for us to belong. As he graciously reminds us in verse 3, for you have died. Then in other words, our relationship to God is far greater than it makes our relationship to the world as if we were dead and we already moved on. I find it that most people, this appeal for heaven seems to be more about the burdens that we can finally just leave behind us. That's what seems most appealing about heaven. That heaven becomes this kind of escapism, as if the sole purpose is to take us away from our troubles. But yet when Paul says, seek the things that are above, the focus is not on the troubles that we leave behind, but what we are actually being drawn to. That heaven was never meant to be a coping mechanism to count down the days when we can finally escape our troubles. 
A theology of heaven is meant to empower us through our troubled times. That's why Paul also says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the natural instinct for kids, right? Isn't, there, isn't it? Like, when they get scared, they automatically sh- close their eyes and they, they cover their eyes as if this sort of action makes them disappear and makes all the scary monsters go away. That's what they do. And there's just, when we think about our own lives, there's just too much that we cannot predict and that we cannot control. You can't predict how your kids will turn out. You can't predict when your body will go. You can't predict the heartaches. None of these things. And yet we want to hide. In those moments of extreme fear and anxiety, it always seems like God is the one that has hidden from us. What we fail to realize is what actually is being, being hidden from us, that Jesus, hides, uh, that Jesus hides the judgment for the sins of the world from us. Removing our sins, or better yet, hiding them under the lifeless body of Jesus on a cross. So that, that, matter, so that no matter what happens here, the cross is Jesus embracing us and calling us, just belong, just belong, just belong. Because there is something beyond our momentary troubles. Which brings us to our last point here. What's beyond all this? Death means the end, but with Christ, it's a new beginning. America's cultural obsession with being young, I feel like it's based on this confliction of what do we do about death? What do we make about death? So the focus is more on how to stay young rather than aging gracefully. You know, I was reading about this professional embalmer. His name is Mr. Harville, who would fix up the deceased so that they can look more presentable at funerals. He's been doing this for quite some time. 25 years. He's gotten so good at this that he, tells, uh, that he writes and he admits that sometimes families will come up to him and tell him, wow, they look so nice, I couldn't even cry, end quote. Which is an amusing statement, right? Yes, capture my right side. That's my good dead side. To which... Dr. Raya, the chief division of geriatrics and palliative medicine, she made this comment about this embalming business. She said this, even after death claims the body, we're going to beautify it in some way, like death cannot win. Death cannot win. Are these not conflicting statements about death? Do they not scream out, a desire for life beyond the one that ends here. That perhaps in all our attempts to stay young or to beautify death somehow, our attempts at what the Bible calls a glorified life. The very thing that verse 4 presents. That when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Only Jesus can bring us to our glorified lives. I feel like there's too many half-hearted jokes of what we want our glorified bodies to be like, to have arms like Chris Hemsworth or to have six-pack abs or whatnot. But one thing that I feel like gets overlooked is the simple fact that that there's not enough emphasis on simply being perfectly happy with just being our glorified selves, with no wounds, 
with just pure, unadulterated eyes that have childlike awe and wonder for the life that they've been given. I'm an adamant believer that funerals are just as important to attend as the weddings. See, the weddings, I feel like they're curated versions of happily ever after, what that's supposed to look like. They're fun. There's a lot of dancing going on. And it's all based on the theme of love. But there's nothing like a funeral that makes everyone open to the reality that maybe, just maybe, there's more to life than the things that we have now. And just maybe, we need God. The funerals are just as much about love because the funerals are just more of a tense version of what love is. I was sitting at the kitchen um, with my daughter. I was feeding her Rice Krispie treats or something. And as, I was, as she was done, I was getting up to pick her up. My, my knees, one of my knees, they crack and pop. And so I just sit down, I grimace. And my daughter, Millie, she asked me, are you okay? So I tell her, oh, yeah, I'm okay. I'm just turning into grandma and grandpa. So she pauses for a moment. And she asks me, then who will be my appa? Who will be my dad? And it, the existential, existential light bulb went off. That I'm going to be the cause of this kid's greatest grief in her life one day because I cannot be there forever for her. Death has this perfect record. I can't beat it. No one can. And I couldn't help but think about Jesus' reaction to the death of his friend Lazarus that as he watched or looked over his dead body, Jesus simply wept. And as he looked at the lifeless body of Lazarus, Jesus looked at the uh, lifeless body of Lazarus, he was determined to even the score with death. Lazarus, get up. And a miracle of all miracles happens. Lazarus gets up. A literal resurrection here on earth. But you know what's always missing from this? You know what's missing from that miracle? What's hidden? is the fact that someone has to go down for Lazarus to get back up. Death has a perfect record, but it is no match for a perfect Savior. That the heart of God, that the heart of Jesus, cannot and will not lose us. And to gain us as his own, Jesus loses everything that he has. He puts it all on the line at the cross, and he empties himself of all his glory so that one day, you may rise with him in glory. You can never lose the love of Christ. You can never lose the love of Christ. Not even in your greatest of shame, not even in your deepest of sorrow, will he ever lose you. And if this is the glory, if this this glory is your gain, then you have absolutely nothing to lose. And that, my friends, means everything. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, teach us what it means to seek the things that are above. When we feel like we've got too much to lose, show us everything that's actually truly being given at the cross that Jesus you not only give us your life, 
but you also give us perfect righteousness as a reminder that you have overcome death in the grave. Teach us where true glory lies in the humility and the gentleness of our Savior Jesus. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.